Welcome to Bluegrass Sunday. Thank you for coming and letting us just laugh and love the Lord together in a different kind of a way. Today we begin a new sermon series, as Pastor Megan mentioned to you earlier. We're calling it Fearless Q, Fearless Questions, Dare to Ask. A couple of months ago, we put out a request to you. If you had a chance to ask your pastor one tough, thorny stumper of a question, what would it be? And we gave you a piece of paper and said, okay, write it down and turn it in. And boy, did you turn it in. We got 390 responses. And some of you cheated. You wrote down more than one question on your piece of paper. That was wrong. And, uh, and so we tallied all of those. We collated them, tallied them, and we divided them up into the, the 10 most frequently asked questions. And that's what we're going to be preaching on this summer for the next 10 weeks. That's what we're going to be tackling. And uh, so welcome to that series. Let me just start by saying this. This is going to lay the groundwork. We approach these questions with a deep sense of humility. The questions that we're going to be dealing with have vexed human beings for hundreds and even thousands of years, and it would be hubris for us to imagine that suddenly your pastoral team is going to stand up here and, oh, that makes it clear, now I've got it all figured out. So we do not come with that kind of attitude, but what we are going to do is take you to the scriptures together. And even that at times will be a little frustrating, honestly, because sometimes the, um, the Bible seems to say two things. Sometimes uh, the Bible is maddeningly silent. And, and sometimes the Bible is very clear and we just don't like what it says. Today might be one of those days for some of you. And yet these questions that you have posed to us are, are very real questions and they deserve an honest response. So as I said, we're going to tackle these over this next two and a half months with a deep spirit of humility and we ask that you would come to this with the same spirit the fact is that we might be wrong on some of these the fact is you might be wrong on the position that you're holding so adamantly to right now so let's kind of let loose of that a little bit and turn to God's word together and see what we can understand about unpacking some of these challenging uh, conundrums okay fair enough fair enough Good. So I thought I'd kick off our series with a softball. Predestination. (laughs) That is also known as election. And the question that you were posing, uh, how do predestination and free will go together? How do we hold together predestination and free will? Here's the uh, packet of questions that had to do with uh, this one. And there's one of your questions that kind of summed it all up and we chose it as the subtitle for the sermon. Does God choose us or do we choose Him? Right? I mean, that's really the summation of it. Does God choose us or do we choose Him? So I want to start with our definition. Predestination is the biblical teaching that before time, God chose specific people for salvation. Before time, God chose specific people for salvation. Last week, our daughter Rachel, who is back at seminary in Gordon-Conwell, she was driving near her seminary, and she saw something in the middle of the road that caused her to slow down. And, uh, and she stopped her car, and then she noticed that it started to move. And so she put the flashers on and let the cars back up behind her, and she got out to investigate, and this is what she found. Do you see what she's holding? That is a snapping turtle the size of a small hubcap. And Rachel, being Rachel, 
decided to save him. And so she got out and she picked up the snapping turtle and then she discovered why they named it that. Turns out he was doing his best to lock those jaws on her fingers. And so she very gingerly, she put it in her car and she transported it to a pond near the seminary, which is going to destroy the ecosystem of that pond and and surprise the first freshman who goes waiting in there next year. When it comes to the doctrine of predestination, we, we need to approach it like a snapping turtle. If we pick it up carelessly, if we treat it with less respect than it deserves, it can wreak havoc and it can cause real damage. And so we are going to pick this up very carefully together. And I'll tell you right now, this is going to require some hard work on your part. You've asked a hard question, so I'm going to preach a hard sermon and you need to work with me. So you need to give as much effort in listening and processing and paying attention and leaning in on this as I did in trying to pull this thing together, okay? So buckle up your pew belts and be big boys and girls and let's tackle this and let's start with a word of prayer, okay? Father, we thank you for uh, your word and for all of it and the things that it teaches us that we understand and those that we don't understand for they give us a glimpse into the magnificence of, of your person. And so, Lord, this day as we tackle this topic, would you please guide us, open our hearts and help us to understand your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. On this Father's Day, as I was trying to think about how to help us uh, launch into this topic, I came up with an image that I think would be dear to every dad in this place. Imagine, dads, that you have a pool outside of the back, in the backyard, and that you walk out one afternoon, and to your horror, you discover that your four-year-old son is in the water, flailing about. You see the look of terror on his eyes. He can't speak because his throat is already closed with the water that he has swallowed, uh, and, and he is, he's thrashing about in utter panic. Now, as a dad, what are you going to do? You know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to go over to the edge of the pool, and you're going to reach down, and you're going to grab your boy, and you're going to pull him out. But let's say that you do that. You reach down, you grab him, you pull him out, but he's still so terrified, so panicked, he begins to strike at you and slash out and, and maybe even rakes your skin with his, his fingernails. You just tighten your grip on your kid, and you pull him to safety, don't you? And as he coughs and as he cries in your arms, you reflect back on what happened in this brief but terrifying moment. You ask yourself these questions. Did your son ask you for help? No. His throat was filled with water. Did your son reach out to you for help? No. In fact, he struck back at the very hand that wanted to save him. So what part did your son have in his own rescue. No part at all. Absolutely none. So then why was your boy saved? Because his father noticed his peril and realized his utter inability to save himself and out of his love, out of his own initiative, he reached out to rescue his son. And that is the picture of predestination as we understand it in our Reformed tradition. When I say Reformed, that's the theological system that most Presbyterians 
follow. And, he, and he, here's the summation of it. God in his, saw us in our helpless state. And he realized that he, we couldn't even cry out for help, that we were drowning in our sin. And so out of his love, by his own initiative, he chose to save us. It was all God's doing. God's love, God's initiative, God's salvation. And we did nothing to deserve it, nothing to enable it. All we could do was receive it. That is in some, that is the view, the reformed view of election. It places all of the initiative, all of the authority, all of the choice about salvation in the hands of a sovereign God. In short, we would simply say this, God saves sinners. God saves sinners. It is God who saves sinners. Now, as you listen to this, you might say, well, what would be an alternative position on this? And I'm about to give you a big word. It's called Arminianism. Would you say that? Arminianism was named after a theologian named Arminius, yes. Theologian named Arminius who lived around the same time as Calvin. Arminius emphasized not the sovereignty of God, but the free will of mankind. His focus was on the choice and free will and not the sovereignty of God. And so to return to the illustration I used earlier, Armenians might say something like this. God was right there standing at the edge of the pool. He was ready to save. And all he was doing was waiting for those two words he wanted to hear. Please, save me. Save me. Help me. And as soon as the arm reaches out, he was ready to jump in and take care of the matter. Uh, But until the stricken swimmer calls out for help, God's hands are tied. But a Reformed theologian, like me, would say this. He couldn't cry out for help. He was drowning. He couldn't reach out for help. He was flailing. In fact, when the hand of salvation came, his instinct was to slap it and to strike back. The only way that child could be saved was if the father would take the initiative, reach out, ignore the flailing, and haul him to safety. And that is our view of the doctrine of election. And there's a lot about this doctrine, wherever you come down on it, that is actually very comforting. When you think about it, when you imagine uh, a God who is reaching out to save those who cannot save themselves, he saved me when I could not save myself. There's a lot to be comforted by that. But here's where the doctrine of predestination begins, becomes problematic for some. It's the idea that God chooses only some to save. And the Bible calls them the elect, while choosing not to elect others to salvation. And some would say that doesn't seem fair. Perhaps that's the way you feel too. So why do we believe that God elects some, that chooses some and passes over others? Why do we believe that God specifically calls certain people? Because from the beginning to the end of Scripture, we see it again and again and again. God comes and he chooses a man named Abram, a pagan in the middle of a pagan land. Why did he choose Abram the pagan and not George the pagan over here? We don't know. He's God. He chose this one. God chooses a murderer named Moses. God chooses a a small tribe of people through which he wishes to bless the world. Now, the Jews were a very small nation. Uh, There were a lot more nations than the Jews, and yet... God selected them. In fact, we have a name for the Jews. What do we call them? 
the chosen people. Think about that when you struggle with this. We already have the language of election in our very speech. He chose the Jews instead of any other nation in the world. So the Old Testament repeatedly speaks to God's authority, his sovereign election. So does the New Testament. You might be surprised to discover how many times Jesus himself speaks to the doctrine of election. Uh, You will find it when he explains to listeners why he spoke in parables, for instance, where he says, actually, he's trying to confuse some, which it doesn't make, at first, it doesn't make any sense. When you turn, for instance, to John chapter 6 and John chapter 17, again and again, you will see Jesus teaching about and talking about those whom the Father gave to him. Let me, let me read you just a couple of passages. John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, that's all the people that the Father gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And then you drop down further. We're going to stay here until we find it. What? There it is! I'm under a great deal of pressure. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And later on in that same chapter, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father has enabled him. So Jesus himself talks about the doctrine of election. And of course, the Apostle Paul. Paul himself was chosen out of all of the Pharisees that wanted to kill Jesus. It is Paul who was called by God. To, he was elected to his salvation. And he was on the way to kill Christians. Why Paul above the other Pharisees? We have no idea. But Paul is called by God. And for the rest of his ministry, Paul writes with great tenderness and affection for this incredible doctrine of election that called him a person of such unworthiness. If you want to study what Paul's greatest thinking on this doctrine is, turn to Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's where you need to go. Where he he even anticipates the very questions that some of us ask. He said, you'll say this, and I'll tell you this. You'll say this, and I'll tell you this. So Paul wrote extensively about it. But for this morning's text, I want to turn to one that is really a tender place for me. It comes out of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Listen to those words. God chose us before the foundation of the world. We didn't choose him. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So this idea that God of his own volition, of his own initiative, by his own authority and to his own glory, chooses, selects, elects, is, it's woven. It's like another scarlet thread woven through the scripture. And it may be one of those doctrines that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but there are lots of doctrines that make people uncomfortable. And our responsibility then is to try to unpack it and try to understand it. 
Now, if we are able to agree that election is in Scripture, predestination is a true teaching of Scripture, then a a fair question for us ought to be, then what ought our response to that be? And I want to speak, first of all, about the positive nature, the positive response that this should evoke from us. The positive response of election ought to be, first of all, gratitude. Gratitude. When it suddenly strikes you, when the power of Ephesians 1 suddenly strikes you, before the foundation of the earth was laid, before God had spoken a single thing into creation, he already saw me. And he had already decided that he was going to save me and adopt me into his family. How can you respond with anything but incredible gratitude? How can you do anything but say, thank you, Jesus, for seeing me in my distress And calling me to yourself. Saving me. Thank you for that. A second response that is, I think, appropriate is humility. Humility. When you realize that God chose to save you for no other reason than that he wanted to. Not because you're good. Not because you deserved it. But because he chose to save you. It is a very humbling thing. This is a particular problem, though, because the two primary tenets of American religion are these. Everybody is good, and we all go to heaven. Those are the two primary tenets of American religion. Everybody is good, except for Hitler. Hitler never makes the cut. And we all go to heaven. I've never been to a funeral where I saw someone stand up and speak about the deceased and say, you know, he was really a pretty awful guy. He's probably in hell and he deserves it. I have, if you've heard that, I'd love to hear from you, but I have never heard anyone say anything, oh, he's up there and kind of playing, you know, smoking cigars with God or whatever. In America, everybody's good and every go, everybody goes to heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We need a Savior. And when we read the Bible from beginning to end, we discover how hopelessly wicked we are. We are not good. Our inclinations are not holy. Our instincts are not pure. And once again, the image of the swimming pool is apt. We are in fact drowning in our own sin and selfishness. And what we deserve is judgment. Yet despite this, God in His grace chooses to save us. Now some will uh, object, election is not fair. Election's not fair. It's not fair that God should choose some and allow others to suffer the judgment that they deserve. So here's one response. You know what would be fair? What would be fair would be if all of us suffered the judgment that we deserve. I mean, the cross, you want to talk about not fair? Jesus on the cross is is not fair. So what would be most fair is that we experience the wrath of God, which we deserve. The doctrine of election should evoke a deep sense of humility. I deserve God's judgment, and that would be fair. But what I got was God's amazing grace. And then the third response to election would be, and it's so precious, assurance. Assurance, the assurance of my salvation. If my salvation is my responsibility, if it depends upon my confession of faith and my obedience then how do I know it is secure? If I gained salvation by my actions, can't I just as surely lose my salvation by my actions? 
But the doctrine of election says that since God is doing the saving and not me, my salvation is secure. Put a different way, if the all-powerful God has decided he is going to save Mark Toon, what can stop him? Jesus speaks about this in his magnificent treatise on the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. He was talking to antagonistic Jews. Listen, both for a hint of this election that I was telling you about, as well as for the words of assurance. Here's what Jesus said. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear the wonderful promise of God's assurance? Jesus' sheep, the elect, will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And by the way, for those who are nervous about their own salvation, that no one includes you. You are a no one. Not even you can snatch yourself out of the hands of Christ. Even when you fight against the Lord, even in times of doubt and rebellion, there's nothing you can do to unchild yourself, to unadopt yourself. You belong forever to the Lord. And so we go back to the swimming pool again. I want you to imagine that the son in his terror is flailing and he's scratching the very arm that wants to save him and begins to draw blood. What does the father do when he feels that pain? Does he say, wow, this rescue is too painful for me. I'm going to let go now. No, that kid could pull the father's arm out of the socket and the father is never, 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 never going to let go of his boy. And thus we get a glimpse of the assurance that we have that our salvation is secure in the hands of Christ. Gratitude, humility, assurance. Calvin viewed the doctrine of election as a great comfort to his people, to the church. It reassured them in a time when another part of the church was saying, the only way you can be saved is to obey all the rules and belong to this church. Calvin said, no, you belong to God. He's the one that saved you. Now, there are other responses that are probably less helpful, and I want to touch on a couple of those. And uh, if this rubs up against you, just pay attention to what the Spirit might be stirring. Some find election distasteful, frankly, because we don't like the idea of God being God. We we don't like the idea of God being God. We know what is fair and right. We want to be the captains of our soul. We value equality and freedom above all. And so we resent the idea of a sovereign God who would presume to exercise his divine authority. I think this might be the greatest obstacle to this doctrine in the American culture because for us, equality and choice and fairness are our gods. And I think this is the great issue that we have to grapple with. Is God sovereign or not? Do we trust him to do what is right and fair or not? Really, it comes down to this. What do we think the character of God to be. There's one other unhelpful response, and that would be fatalism. Fatalism is the idea that if God has predestined me, then I'm just a puppet. 
You ever heard that? Perhaps you've thought that. I'm just a puppet. He's the puppet master. I'm on the strings. Don't have to do anything. In fact, it doesn't matter what I do. I certainly don't need to be sharing the gospel with others because those who are saved are saved. Those who are not are not. Is that the right response? It is not the right response. And here we come back to the title of the message this morning. Does God choose us or do we choose him? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Both are true. The call of God always comes first. The call of God always comes first. But the means of God's salvation for his elect requires a response of faith. It's the way God works election. And for those who wonder, who are fearful, what if I'm not among the elect? Could I just tell you this? Those who are not don't care about that question. If, if you worry about that, believe me, the, the, those who are not don't care about the, that question. And here's all you need to do. Ask yourself this. Think of these, this passage. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know where that passage comes from? Right in the middle of Paul's treatise on predestination. So if you want to know whether you're among the elect, ask yourself, have I confessed that Jesus is Lord? Do I believe in my heart God raised him from the dead? Then you are. And you can rest in that. That is our response. Let me take you one last time to the poolside. The dad pulls out the thrashing child from the water. And when the son finally comes to his senses as he's in the embrace of his father, what does he do? He begins to weep and he throws his arms around his dad's neck and he says, Daddy, you saved me. Daddy, you saved me. What does he do? He chooses a response of loving gratitude to the father that saved him in his despair. Did God choose me? Yes. Do I choose God? Yes. And it's a divine mystery. It's a divine mystery. And shouldn't we expect that if the Bible really is re- reveals to us the, something of the nature of God, that occasionally we're going to be confused? That his ways might be greater than our ways? One way for us to think about this is to think about those great towers that you see high on the hills, those great radio towers. How are they held in place against the plummeting, the, the buffeting wind? It's with two guy wires, Right? And there's a sense in which our salvation, the tower of our salvation, is held in place by these two wires. On the one hand, we have the sovereignty of God, His initiation, His action. And on the other, the doctrine of free will, which is just as truly taught in there. And somehow, sovereignty of God, predestination and election, and free will, somehow together, they hold that tower in place. You take one away or the other, and the whole thing crumbles down before you. I think this is a precious gift, actually, that we uh, need to be more aware of and grateful for. But I also call it the so what doctrine. Not from the standpoint of us as believers, because I already told you why it matters. It's such a a gift to realize of God's call and his compassion for us. But uh, there's another sense in which it's a so what doctrine. Why? Do we know who the elect are? We haven't a clue whom God has called to himself. We haven't a clue whom God has called to save. And so that being the case, what do we do? 
We do what Jesus told us to do. We sow the seed. We go into all the world. We preach the gospel because these are the means by which God elect, saves his elect. And by the way, John Calvin, the father of Calvinism, yes, John Calvin, who wrote extensively on this doctrine, he planted 2,000 churches. If Calvin believed that predestination meant that you could sit back on your heels and just let God do the work, well, he wasn't, he wasn't practicing what he preached. He believed that we needed to be about what Christ had called us to do, and so we shall. Someone once said that there are, there's a sign, I think it was Spurgeon, there was a sign at the gates of heaven, and on the outside as you approach, it reads from the book of Revelation, whosoever will may come. And then you walk into the gates and you turn around and on the back of the sign it reads, chosen before the foundation of the earth. And that's the mystery. And if you still find it confusing, then take heart because Paul himself found it confusing. For at the very end of his three-chapter treatise on the doctrine of election, this is how Paul concludes. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. And so, Father, we come to this majestic and sometimes confusing doctrine with great humility. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet us in this moment as we revel in the wonder that you, our God, have called us to salvation before we could do a thing about it. And what a gift it is to think about this, that you, Lord, are the love that will not let us go. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that it rests not in our hands in the firmness of our grip, but in your hands, the firmness of your grasp upon our eternal souls. And for that, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.